Hello, this is Gary Wells, and you are listening to The American Farewell. It's Wednesday, the 11th of May, 2022. This is Episode 3, A Question of Personhood. A lot of discussion has been going on lately that revolves around the question of who gets counted when it comes to having rights, especially as it pertains to the rights of women and the unborn. In today's podcast, we'll take a swing at the historical relevance of who was granted rights, how access to rights changed over time in America, and where we are at today. We will be using terms like person and citizen, and it may get confusing at times. These words are not interchangeable. We will try to demonstrate the differences where appropriate. There are typically two levels of rights recognized by any government the basic human rights available to every human being or person, and the rights reserved for persons who are considered to be the subject of that government, which would be a citizen. First, we should point out that there are two major definitions of person. The natural person, that is a living, breathing, thinking human being, and a legal person, which is an abstract construct to represent an entity capable of entering into a legal contract. This is why Mitt Romney's infamous statement, corporations are people, my friend, is technically correct. For the purposes of this podcast, we are going to stick with the first definition, the natural person. For some reason, that always makes me think of a person in a buff. Put some clothes on, will you? Most sources will cite the use of the term person to have originated in Greek theater, where actors assumed a persona on stage. Over time, the idea of a person in Western civilization came to be used to represent a human being who has intrinsic rights which cannot be granted, altered, or removed by a government. At worst, such rights could only be suspended or ignored. That may seem funny, that you can just ignore a person's basic intrinsic rights. However, a person's rights are not something that must be accepted like a force of nature. You can't deny gravity or radioactive decay by merely pretending they don't mean anything to you. But you can pretend that another person is not equal to you, giving them less intrinsic value. For example, would a Dodgers fan see a San Francisco Giants fan as an equal? Do hearty meat eaters see vegetarians as equals? Would you see an extraterrestrial alien and think that they have the same basic rights as you? See? The value of being a person is very, very subjective. Furthermore, the concept of person was, in most historical contexts, assumed to indicate a man. The reason for that is that for thousands of years, only men were considered to be worthy of having the full set of laws applied to them. The language of laws often specified man or men as the subjects of said laws. Otherwise, a term like citizen may have been used, again, with the understanding that only men were considered citizens. As the Bible would tell you, the man was then responsible for making sure that everyone else in his household upheld the law. There were a few laws pertaining to women in older times. Mostly, these were laws to punish women who were not behaving themselves, or laws for women who did not have a male to speak for them. In those instances, they were generally treated as foreigners. That is, they had few rights under the law, but they were recognized as deserving of fair and honorable treatment. If we reflect on this, it may seem strange that the member of our species that could physically produce another human being was the sex that was not granted full legal protections under the law. 
It's as if the ability to develop and give birth to a new person was not worthy of special consideration. Well, here's the twist as the old societies saw it. Women could produce new humans, but only after interaction with a man. It was well recognized that women had menstrual cycles, which played a role in the timing of becoming pregnant. But part of that cycle also included a time when she was typically looked at as unclean. At no time during her cycle could a woman independently bear a child as a consequence of her own biological functions. It wasn't until they had sex with a man that a woman could bring forth a child. In the eyes of older civilizations, this was proof that it was the man who initiated life. So, men were the ones who were special, even though it was the women who carried and gave birth to and nursed the children. Of course, now we know better. It is settled science that men and women both provide necessary components to the creation of a new human being. But it is still the woman who has to bear the fetus. Men are free to go on and do whatever they wish. When we start with that old naive assumption that men bring life to women, and add to that the freedom from carrying a child in the womb, then mix in the more physically dominant and psychologically assertive nature of men, it is easy to see how governments were established and laws were created by men for men. Along the way, it was also decided that women were not intellectually fit to participate in their own governance. Literature from ages gone by is filled with descriptions of women as flighty, irrational, emotional, vindictive, and just plain wicked. As unfair as these dismissive terms were, one could also see how women might be pushed to these states by having to deal with brutish, foolhardy, jealous, vulgar, and empathy-deprived men. None of us are perfect, obviously. Yet it was the common need to assert their superiority that kept men unified in the creation of and adherence to social rules that diminished and punished women. The notion that the terms person or citizen was typically reserved for men was true up to the time of the 13 American colonies. Men were persons in the eyes of the law, and persons meeting certain criteria under the law of the land were citizens. The law was not meant for women, except as directed by their husband or community leader. Therefore, it was rare for women in the 1700s to hold property, they could not have a bank account, they could not be a minister in a church, and they could not vote. In other words, women were not citizens and could scarcely be called persons in the eyes of the law. But this brings us to another question about personhood. Even if the laws were made by men and for men, were all men actually created equal? According to our own constitution, no. It is well known that slaves were counted at a rate of three-fifths for the purpose of apportionment of congressional representation. Not only were they not counted as a whole person, and that's a really weird visual to be honest, but slaves had no recourse under the law in most jurisdictions, even when it came to intrinsic personal rights. Like women, they were subject to the order of the white men who had legal authority over them. Slaves could be sold, raped, and even killed, and the owner would typically receive no punishment for it. Although white women could not be sold, a husband could do virtually whatever he wanted to his wife, and she would have little or no recourse under the law in many jurisdictions at the time. In other words, her personhood was null and void in these instances. 
However, men of African descent had the chance to attain the rights of personhood when they attained freedom from an owner. But even then, they were not treated as full citizens. This was officially acknowledged with the Dred Scott case of 1857. In the majority opinion of Dred Scott v. Sanford, the Supreme Court essentially said that a man born of the African race was not eligible to be counted as a citizen. This eventually changed for men of color with the passing of the 14th Amendment, which specifically determined that a person who was born in the U.S. should have the full rights of a citizen, regardless of race. Yet, once again, this presumed that only men were persons. Although there were limited rights granted to women in some states at the time, as far as federal law was concerned, women in 1868 still were not persons who had autonomy over their lives. Even after generations upon generations of managing the household, raising the children, performing labor in the field, and producing valuable goods like clothing or soap or clay cookware, it was still believed that women were not capable of making decisions for themselves. We may as well pause here to acknowledge that such terms as person and citizen also did not apply to children, especially the unborn. No one in 1868, at the time when the 14th Amendment was written, at least no man among those writing the laws, inserted language anywhere to spread citizenship to a fetus. On the contrary, the 14th Amendment specifically covers a person, quote, born or naturalized, end quote, in the United States. The wording of this amendment, which matches language elsewhere in the Constitution, specifically precludes citizenship and the rights associated with citizenship to the unborn. In any case, women were not granted full rights of participation in the function of government as a citizen until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. Finally, after a long and multifaceted campaign from multiple organizations, women had the right to vote in federal elections and hold elected office. Even so, women were not granted the same privileges as men in society. Therefore, while they were acknowledged as a citizen, they were still not granted equality as a person. For instance, women could not serve on a jury in every state until the 1960s. As recently as the 1970s, a woman could be denied a credit card without approval from her husband. In some states, Women could not get a business loan on their own until the 1980s. When you do not have the same privileges as others within your society, even if you could theoretically participate fully as a citizen, your intrinsic rights as an equal are being ignored. This is true for women and for persons of color and members of the LGBT community and religious minorities, etc., etc., etc. Without access to the full range of fair treatment, your personhood is being suppressed. That brings us to the fundamental question of the abortion debate. Of all of the things that a woman was not allowed to do in the past, one of the things that she could do in private was to terminate a pregnancy. As of 1973, it became official law that an adult woman could terminate a pregnancy on her own within certain constraints relating to the later stages of development of the fetus. As we all know, this has been a very contentious issue since that time. The foundation, for, the foundation for the contention is the assertion, by more than a few people, that abortion is the termination of a human life. In most circumstances, ending a human life is considered murder and is wrong by common ethical and moral standards. However, 
as there is no absolute guarantee that an unborn fetus will survive to the point of delivery from the womb, especially when it's still in the first two trimesters of development, that's the crux of the matter, and that's what prior Supreme Court rulings have been based on. Until the unborn child is carried to term, as it is designed to do, we don't know with absolute certainty that it will survive. With that uncertainty as a factor, it is difficult to assign it the designation of being a person with access to rights. All of that is on the cusp of changing as our current Supreme Court looks at giving a decision whereby women no longer have the unilateral capacity to terminate a pregnancy, out of deference to the presumed desire of the fetus to be born. In a number of states, laws are being written and passed that would actually criminalize acts intended to prevent or impede or terminate a pregnancy. None of those actions would be considered unlawful unless the unborn is implicitly granted rights as if they were a person. As we mentioned before, women were gradually granted the same rights as men in drips and drabs at the state level and eventually at the federal level. There were a number of restrictions on women until very recently. This should be taken as evidence that, as a society, we do not hold that the simple virtue of being alive guarantees you the privileges of being a person equal to others. Women and persons of color were not considered equal for a long, long time, even though they were clearly human beings. Unborn children, on the other hand, were never explicitly granted personhood before. Even if we were to go back to old English law or customs from around the world, the unborn were never assumed to be a person and thus held no rights as a citizen. If you prefer to use the Bible as the foundation for laws, even there you will find more evidence of infanticide being acceptable than of abortion being a punishable act. The unborn were simply not counted as persons, except in a very few scriptures. The determination that an unborn child has rights of personhood, which supersede the rights of personhood for a woman, is new. Once again, women, as it relates to matters that directly affect their health, are being relegated to second fiddle. Historically, they were second to men. Now, they are second to a fetus of uncertain viability. If the various proposed laws that have been consideration are allowed to stand, in some places women will have fewer rights than a criminal rapist or his family. Considering how long women fought just to attain some semblance of equality with men, it is unfathomable that they would allow themselves to be collectively relegated to second-class citizens again, with infringements upon their intrinsic rights as a person. Their opposition in this fight will stake their arguments in old traditions that favor men, honestly, and carefully pruned religious texts. Women will stake their argument on being accepted as a person. Thanks for joining us today. I know this has been a difficult subject, and hopefully there's just some points of discussion that we've covered here. You have been listening to The American Farewell with Gary Wells. Until next time, keep dreaming, America.